Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And we are recording this podcast today at my house, and Yolando has not said a word about all of our Christmas and Advent decorations. Your Christmas decorations are lovely. I mean, it doesn't even matter if I have to ask you to say something. Anyway, please edit that part out. <laughs> So We're leaving what, that in. What is astonishing you this week? Let's see. I'm astonished, of course. Well, maybe I shouldn't say of course, but I am astonished uh, about um, or by the incarnation. And it, that's not an obvious thing. It's not a, well, duh, of course, it's Christmas time. True confession, I've spent a lot of years uh, preaching, emphasizing the crucifixion, the resurrection and Pentecost. You are not lying. Not there have been several years <laughs> we've been coming up to Easter and we we're talking about our Easter sermons, and I am like, dude, you have to preach the empty tomb. You are preaching substitutionary atonement, and yes. that is not an Easter sermon. Yes, and and I have not emphasized the incarnation. Mm-hmm. But lately I have been astonished. I've had my eyes open to some things about the incarnation that, again, true confession, I haven't seen until recently. I think I've fallen into a rut that a lot of people fall into or pitfalls when it comes to the incarnation. Number one, um, it used to be when I heard incarnation, that is God becoming a human being in Jesus Christ, I would think about it in terms of ability. It's like, mm-hmm. of course, an almighty God can become a human being, What's so astonishing about that? Mm-hmm. Then on the flip side, I started to think about the incarnation as God becoming a human being to rescue us from sin and death so that um, we can be saved. And of course, there is some astonishment in that because God does that out of love and grace and mercy. Thanks to N.T. Wright, I see that the incarnation is about God's desire to dwell with human beings on the earth. And so the incarnation is really about God's intention, God's plan for creation. Um, N.T. Wright says, um, I was listening to a lecture, and he says that in his part of the body of Christ, the Church of England, they often use a gold chalice Mm -hmm. uh, for communion. And he says that chalice is a sign a pointer, a foretaste of what God wants to do with creation. That is to dwell in it, to fill it with his Mm. glory, not to beam us up to heaven, but to fill the earth, to redeem the planet, the creation and those who live in it. Yeah. Like it's um, for the theology nerds and their lives. It's like this anti-Marcion theology, right? So Marcion was this famous heretic who posited that like basically that the earth was garbage yes. and that the God in the Old Testament was a lesser God and that the only thing that mattered was disembodied know, spirit. Correct. Mm-hmm. And that then that the God of the New Testament was a better loving mm-hmm. anyway. And and this is this I mean the incarnation itself is the the truth that destroys that illusion that this world doesn't matter and that, you know, God is not consistent or the same. I mean, God coming to dwell in creation is a hallowing of creation. Yes. And it's interesting that you brought this up because I had written some readings for our um, cantata that we did two weeks ago. And I think that we're going to put on the podcast in a week. Next week. week. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting because sometimes I write things and I, I just you know, whatever, you just try to get out of the way of the Mm -hmm. self-editing impulse. And I write something and I then look back at it and I'm like, huh, do I like, do I believe this? Do I think this is true? Is it, can I say this? You know, and it was, that's what I had written in front of this one song that we sang about love all along, um, said, you know, what is this, what is the glory of God, um, being born like a 
son, like the only son, full of grace and truth from, from John. And there was saying, what is this glory? Could it be that loving us is God's glory? Could it be that God loves us not out of divine obligation or as a long-suffering burden? Could God's glory revealed in the Son, could it be showing us that God's love for us? Um, could it be showing us that God loves us? Could it be that that love for us is a sacred indulgence, that for God, it's a holy pleasure to dwell with us? Could Emmanuel mean that God is with us for the sheer delight of loving us? Could it be that you, that I, that we are the Lord's beloved? Um, and I, I think that idea of the glory of God, the thing about God that astonishes us and and is and brings us to awe, is you know deeper than can God do this, mm-hmm. and deeper than what is God's purpose in doing it. But the glory of God would be that God delights in doing this, right? Yeah. That God loves us, and to get rid of that image in our head of like, you know, the the fireman who's annoyed at having to pull the cat out of the tree one more time, right? That's good. You know, that this mm-hmm. idea that the glory of God is not only that God can, and not only that it is efficacious that God does, but the glory of God is that God is loving as God rescues us, and that God wants to rescue us, just as, like, there's something about parenting when your child um, messes up, and you get the opportunity to to rescue them, to comfort them, to help right their mm. world. You're not resentful That's of good. that. It is this highest fulfillment of who of your role, right? Like that's what loving yeah. your child, you know, gives you not just the responsibility of doing or the obligation of doing, but the delight of doing in that moment. So I I think that's really true. We don't understand, we don't pay attention to the incarnation we are much more, I think, as Americans and Westerners focused on crucifixion and atonement because we're such a purpose-driven mm-hmm. people. <laughs> well, and there's a tendency, and I've heard people preach this, that the incarnation of God means I must be really worth it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I Look how wonderful and great I am that God would do this for me. And we've, we really have to see it in a different way, that this is about the, the greatness and the goodness and love of God, not my own goodness and greatness and lovability. Right, but but we don't want to go too far in the other direction either sure. end up back in Marcion land of like, we're just garbage. I mean, it's just being able to, as we've already said this morning, be able to being able to hold two truths mm-hmm. that seem contradictory but are not mutually exclusive, that, I mean, that we that sin is real and it's not cute. <laughs> yes. And, and also we are more than our sin. Like we are more. So there is both within us, the image of God and that which is worthy of being redeemed. And there is within us that which should be irredeemable. And yet in the mystery of God's indwelling isn't. Yes. And yeah. And what's astonishing me about the incarnation is that God's purpose, God's goal is not to beam us up to heaven, right, right forever and ever, amen, but to come down, make creation new, make us new so that the time will come in which heaven and earth kind of overlap. And that's really what the temple in Jerusalem was supposed right. to be about, that right. the, the temple board. was the yeah. right was the place where heaven touched earth. Um, and Jesus says somewhere in the Gospel of John that um, that he's going to be the, the ladder, <laughs> the connection between heaven and earth. Well, and, I mean, he says specifically that, you know, the, the vision that Jacob saw of the angels yeah, that's climbing what I was up referring and down, to. that yes. I'm, I'm the fulfillment. Yes. But I think the other reason we're uncomfortable with really focusing on incarnation is because it feels too um, much for some of us. It, it, it feels too dangerously close to, like, pantheism or... Um, mm. you know, universal salvation. I mean, this idea that God is going to redeem the world and the whole world and all of creation, we're nervous about taking that seriously because we feel like it takes the stick away from the gospel mm. that we use to threaten mm-hmm. and cajole and mm-hmm. control people. And I mean, I also just feel like, and, and I know that somebody important and respectable has said this before me, that if our understanding of the grace of God doesn't dance 
on the edge of heresy and occasionally even appear to cross over, then it's not really grace, right? Mm. But I think we stay away from really um, just contemplating incarnation and preaching incarnation because it it feels too close to heresy for us to say that the world is really beloved and that God is really that powerful. And I think for those of us who, who lead... Um, institutions and are trying to build communities, we worry that if that if we f- really proclaim that the whole world is beloved and that God is dwelling in the whole world, yeah. then we think that lots of people will say, cool, I'm going to go take a hike on Sunday mornings. Mm-hmm. Peace out. So I, I, I think we are, we are afraid of fully proclaiming the goodness of God revealed in the incarnation. I agree. So. Yeah. So what's astonishing you? Um, so I had this incredible experience that I... I thought you were going to say dream, but go ahead. <laughs> no. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, I was visiting um, a, a couple in our congregation who just um, are incredible leaders, and they just has been so much um, just goodness and love that has flowed out of them through the decades. And the the husband is a man named David who's just... He's one of those people who is so kind that it's almost uncomfortable to be in his presence because you just know that this man, with all sincerity, has never even thought something unkind about anyone. Like He just is so sincere and so authentic and so kind that in his presence you're like... It just causes some uncomfortable self-reflection that he would never be a part of, right? Like he just, and and huh. he, um, anyway, and I've known him now for 11 years and, you know, you, you run into someone and you just, you know, you just say like, how are you? And I, he has never not answered, well, I am just great. I mean, and just, you know, and the thing is David, um, has had some really, tough he's he's had um neuropathy Mm. and then um and then recently that has his health not recently in the last year year and a half um that has turned into a diagnosis of als and he just really um he he who has just been the most committed to evangelism and connecting to people that the person in our congregation um he, he just has not had the physical ability to to be out in the world the way that he wants to be, like loving people and serving people and meeting people. I mean, it's interesting. When he first got diagnosed with neuropathy, there was a long time where he couldn't drive, um, and he would get on the bus and ride the bus for like two and a half hours each day to go to his office where he was still working, primarily because working was just a way of connecting mm. with people in the world. He was an insurance sure. salesman. And um and, and as he would ride the bus from his home in East Charlotte, you know, to his office and back again, he just would sit and talk to everyone on the bus and invite them all to church. And just, I mean, he, he is just this beautiful soul. And then, um, yeah, he just can't, he, he, he can't move very much anymore and he's really limited. And now he's in an electric wheelchair and, um, I was over visiting him and his wife, Libba, who's also one of my favorite favorite, favorite people. And she and I were talking at the table and he, um, wheeled himself up to the piano and started playing the piano while we were talking. And the thing is he, I said, you know, I didn't know you could play the piano. And Libba said, well, I mean, we both played a little bit as kids, but just for the past month, he has started playing again. And he, wheels himself up to the piano and he sits there and he plays by ear and she says sometimes for two or three hours and I mean it's not a I mean he's not a savant he's not I mean he's not a great piano player but I just am so astonished at his spirit finding a way Mm. to create something beautiful when all of his normal abilities are slowly being taken away from him. And yet his response is to say, okay, then I will start over again, learning to play the piano, even as I know that the progression of this disease, I I mean, you know, and I just, there's something so glorious 
and beautiful. And it's just one of those things where you just think like, we are not worthy Mm. of this kind of spirit walking among us. And I think about just how I walk around a lot of the time. And, you know, we're, we are going to have variations in our moods and we don't need to walk around. I mean, nobody needs to pretend to be David Hicks. Like that's just who he authentically is. Um, but it does just make me think, you know, how often do I just satisfy myself with cleverly cursing at the darkness? And then Mm. here's this brother of mine who still, if you ask him how he is, he's going to say, I'm just great. And he's going to mean it. And obviously, you know, he's an incredibly intelligent man. He understands everything that's happening to him and everything that's going to happen to him. And I know he loved his life and I know that it hurts that he is losing his Mm. abilities to do things that he enjoyed and to connect with people. And yet the power that he does have, the choice that he does have is to, is to make something beautiful and put it in the world and to Mm. give us all that witness. And I just am really astonished and, humbled and inspired and I really I even haven't I I know I'm going to need to talk about it and I made a recording of it and I think there will come a moment when I will really want to um lift that up before the congregations but it's one of those moments that's so good that you just don't you want to make sure that anyway so that is what I'm astonished at Mm, wow yeah wow I mean right like right so it's powerful, and I think powerful to me to just think about how we all have the capacity to to witness to what we believe in. No matter what our circumstances are, we have the ability to rejoice, and we have the ability to give thanks. And, you know, if it's fake, it's crap. Mm-hmm. What's powerful about his witness is it's, it's not fake. It's yeah. authentic. Yeah. He's not putting on a mask. And it is spirit driven right Correct. because the truth is it is the holy spirit what is what is coming out of him is the fruit of the holy spirit yeah. and um one of the things the scripture teaches us is that that level is possible for all of us right and by I, the work of the spirit right. and i think like i want to create a community and i want to be in a community where we can show up with our whole selves mm-hmm. you know and i i was talking to somebody else recently who was saying that it's I mean and this sounds funny but it's not funny like she was saying that it's hard for her to come for worship she said because people just look at my face and think that I'm angry and then they come up and ask me like why are you angry and I get tired of saying I'm not angry this is my face right and I was like you know fair right and and first of all like for the record Let's never look at a person's face, usually a woman's face, and decide that, Mm. you know, like not to ask, how are you, but just to walk up to someone and And say, you know, what's the matter with you, essentially. Like, I mean, I suppose if someone is physically weeping, it might be okay to walk up to them and say, are you okay? But, you know, because someone doesn't show up with their happy, clappy mask face on, you know, the church... The worshiping body should be a place where you can come in whatever authentic state you are. So if you're angry, come angry. If you're despairing, come despairing. And it shouldn't be a place where we have to put a mask on and pretend to be something we're not. And I, you know, was saying to her, like, I'm sorry that's your experience. And I'm really grateful that you've shared it with me. And I really want us as a community to recognize that we need to meet people where they are and not pressure them to pretend to feel something they don't feel. Um... And having said that, I want to just really honor the holiness of David's witness. And and I'm not saying that anybody else should be anything that they are, you know, but I want that. Like, I want that for myself. I want to be able to bear witness to the goodness and glory of God regardless of my circumstances, authentically. Not because I feel like I have to, not because I feel like if I don't, I'll be rejected by my community or by God, but because that's really my experience is 
anyway, so that that's what's astonishing me and what I'm what I'm thinking about. Wow. Yeah. You know, there are just people in the church. They may or may not be an officer. They may be new to your community. They may have been there a long time. But there are saints that just astonish me. Right. Like, I, I don't know if they realize mm-hmm. the effect that they have on me, the, the, um, that I, I hold some saints in such high esteem because I can see the grace of God on their lives. And like you, I think, yeah, I, I, I want that. some of that. I want mm-hmm. some of that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's just hard because finding that balance between, I mean, even when I, let me just talk about myself. Like I, I want to be part of a community and to have friends where I can show up without pretense and without pretending to be something that I'm not. But I also want to be a part of a community and to have friends who say like, yes, but let me remind you that there's a, there's a reality beyond this present moment and that that reality is, is good. And that there's a way to use, you know, Paul's, you know, um, encouragements about like pressing on and to be able to say there's something just really glorious about running a race for the goodness of God and wanting to reflect the goodness of God in our lives and recognizing that I don't have to, but I want to, and God will give us the grace to, and, and, you know, they're just, sorry, so that's something about we should move on. Well, just (laughs) last thing about that. You're talking about the kind of community that has the wisdom and the grace to know when to encourage, mm-hmm. when to correct, you know, when mm-hmm. when to ask questions, when to be silent, and that's that just takes some maturing. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I I love that that desire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, to not be a place where we feel like we need to fix people, but mm-hmm. to be a place where we are able to encourage everyone that God is good. And God is present. And we just and walk with each other. as possible. Right? Yeah. So, yes. Um, but we have a very, we have a very holy and important thing. We're both thinking about the same thing this week. And so here's what all 10 of you who are listening need to know about us. Is that we have some um, places of real overlap on the Venn diagram of our friendship. And one of those is that we both unashamedly and I have very few friends who share this with me, me like, too. Not, like it's you yeah um we love survivor yes we love the- as a matter of fact when we became friends when we first started walking together our talks were about church transformation yep. preaching and survivor and survivor we like survivor I've been watching it for a long time you can hate if you want to that's fine but I just will there just as there are like different kinds of food and different kinds of books and different kinds of churches there are just different kinds of reality television and some of it is terrible yes and some of it is not like I just don't at the present time I reserve the right to change my mind but at the present time I do not think Survivor is terrible I think it's a really, really... It's a good show. Interesting and evocative, not just as entertainment. And we were talking earlier this morning, because we want to talk about Survivor today and, and why, but we were saying one of the reasons I think for both of us it's really interesting is because I see so many real similarities to the dynamics that I observe on that show and the life that we are a part of in creating this intentional community called the church. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are differences. <laughs> Obviously. But there are real similarities. So, I mean, I suppose there are people who won't know what Survivor is. So, Survivor is a show where, like, 18 people? I think it's 16 people? castaways, maybe. Yeah, maybe castaways. 16 <laughs> castaways. They, they go put to on this, an island. They go to this remote location, which used to be all around the world, and now is in Fiji. Mm-hmm. And they spend 39 days... And they don't, nobody knows each other before they show up. And they're at first divided into two teams and they compete in challenges. And um, at the end of every episode, someone is voted off the island by their group, which is called a tribe. And then at a certain point in the show, the two tribes merge 
and then the challenges become individual and then but at the the thing and that, all the while they have to figure out what they're going to do for food and shelter I mean they really are trying to survive right and and but what is interesting for me more than anything else is it's just these group of total strangers mm-hmm. who have this really intense mm-hmm. experience together in a strange place and they have to form I mean, they, they form really intense relationships and they, you know, are doing this thing that everyone who is on the show, especially now, cause it's like 20 years in, mm-hmm. um, it, it's the fulfillment of a lifelong dream for them. So they're having this really, um, like mountaintop experience together. That's really challenging. That's totally unfamiliar. That's taking them out of their con- comfort zones. They're, they're forming really intense bonds. Um, and, and the way that community is formed, um, is really interesting to me as someone who is leading a church and, you know, just this idea that we are, if we're, I think we're doing church, right. Then it's a group of people who are called together, not because they've chosen each other, but because they've chosen a common experience. Mm -hmm. And there are things about that experience that are that this community that's really wonderful and things that are really difficult and you form really intense relationships. And some of the artifice of that show can be also apparent in our church lives together. And just this, the, the construct of the show that, you know, you got to, um, vote someone out at your forming community, but it's also, you know, someone's getting voted out. I think that dynamic, unfortunately, is really real in church that when life in our community gets hard, in my observation, it is inevitable that everyone, myself included, like our first instinct is just to think, well, if so-and-so weren't here, mm-hmm. everything would be fine. Like the, the always, our instinct as humans, I think, is to say the way to make things better is just to figure out who the weak link is and get rid of them. Well, there's always this tension in the show between the group and the individual, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you're the last one, you get a million dollars. And so there's this incentive to focus on self, but you need the group to get further along. Yeah, and And so there's this constant tension of how much... Do I give to the group? How, how much loyalty do I do I give to the group, and how much um, should I be selfish? And I think the other thing that I find—I mean, it shouldn't be—but I find a lot of times is that in the in the church, sometimes we do tend. I mean, because we live maybe it's different in other parts of the world, but in America, we live in such a competitive, hierarchical you know, scarcity mode that, I mean, in the church, we often feel threatened by one another's gifts. I mean, we often feel like if everybody says that you're a good singer, then I, you know, that makes me feel like maybe my gift doesn't have value. I mean, that's, and that's, that's part of the, the key to the show because some people will actually downshift right in their Mm -hmm. gifts and abilities because they don't want to be perceived as a threat so i mean obviously there's tons of ways that survivor is not like church but there's just times when i watch things work out in that church and i'm like oh i really because it's about people it's about people it's about people and it's about people living in community yes and it's about people who you know want something but then sometimes their brokenness gets in the way and it's just it's very it's very interesting to me but the reason we're talking about it is because there was a really unusual incident on the show. Last episode. Um, so you should tell everyone about that. Well, um, one of the survivor castaways uh, by the name of Dan. <laughs> I love Dan. that you call them castaways. Well, that's what the show calls <laughs> okay. them, the castaways. I, am. I, I take this say, seriously. I, you, okay. I take this seriously. I like to what, maintain what? a space by not using the lingo. <laughs> but okay, anyway, you're all in. Well, a survivor, Dan, was asked by the producers uh, to leave. He, well, not asked. He was told to leave. Primarily because uh, there were complaints about inappropriate touching. Um, Early on in this season, uh, one castaway named Kelly, uh, a young woman, said, "Mm, this guy makes me uncomfortable because he keeps touching me. I don't want to be touched. And then um, the producers gave a warning and says, okay, we're watching you. We see this is not okay. Well, and to be clear... She said, and she did what women 
always do. And I do it all the time. Like you don't want to, I mean, especially in that context, but in any context, this is why it's real. You, you are constantly doing this dance between like, what do I need as an individual? Like what I want is for this person to stop touching me. But in the community, I don't want to get pegged as a problem. Yes. Well, and she actually said, here's the problem. Not only in this game, but in life, in the workplace, wherever you are, if you say something, people are going to put you in a category. They're going to look at you differently, and there's the problem. And well, and if you say, like, this guy was touching me in a way that made me really uncomfortable, the shift in the community will go to that guy, and he didn't mean it, and now you're making him feel really bad, and are you sure, you know, and especially in a Christian community, that is super tricky, like, and it happens all the time, I know to women in churches in general, and to female pastors, myself included, that, like, people, if people touch you in a way that you don't like, and you're the pastor, you can't, it's, it's almost impossible to name that, because People will not want to come to you and be vulnerable with you as a pastor if they are worried that you will will say something that will make them feel accused. So it's just a really tricky space to be in as a woman and you constantly have to decide, you know, and, and it's because it's true that someone can touch you in a way that for them is very innocent and very appropriate in their mind. But to you, it's uncom- like both things can be true. Mm-hmm. And so it's just Which is why hard. we have to talk about it. Right. Well, one of the things that came to me as I've been watching, listening to, reading about the fallout from all of this is that men, primarily men, no, exclusively men, who want to be allies and support Kelly and women who um, feel like boundaries have been crossed, um, they are out to destroy Dan. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's been, the comments have been vicious. And I get that sense of wanting to be an ally, of wanting to be anti-sexist. I consider myself one of those uh, men seeking to be anti-sexist. My problem is that the comments that I'm hearing, they're they're all focused on Dan and not on us as men in general. Like, I'm, I'm, I know that my persona is safe. I'm a Mm. safe guy to be around, but I know that I'm not immune I'm not immune from the ism of sexism. There, there's a, you know, Paul talks about powers and principalities. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about the, the power and principality that gives us the green light to objectify women, to objectify mm-hmm. bodies. And I think that's that's what we have to deal with more. Well, and I think because there are, go ahead. Well, I mean, I just think what's really interesting about the whole thing is and and this situation that we are talking about is more complicated even than we've laid it out because mm-hmm. there were dynamics this unfolded over weeks and but but it was interesting when she first brought it up and then after she brought it up publicly she was voted off and he stayed, right? Yes. And the whole conversation became around how he was a good person, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, watching that unfold um, in, in the place that we came up, ta- started talking about it this morning because we were talking about something else and we're talking about how similar this is to the idea that for white people who who recognize that, yes, I, I, I do not want to be a racist. Being a racist is not a label that I want for myself and I authentically don't want to hurt other people. And so then when some behavior of mine or some comment of mine, a person of color tells me like, wow, that what, you know, that dehumanized me, that was racist. And my response, right. As my response as a white person is like, but I'm a good person, but 
I don't want to be a racist, but I choose to go to this church. And how hard it is as a white person to realize that if someone tells you that your action was destructive, the conversation needs to be about your action, not your worth as a human being, right? And that's to your point with the guy, Dan, that people would just want to be like, well, this happened. And so the response is to say, well, he is a garbage human. Yes. And that's scapegoating is makes everyone except for him super comfortable because people can say and lets other men off the hook right like there's no problem now that we've gotten rid of that guy Mm -hmm. everything is fine Mm -hmm. instead of being able to say look both things can be true he can be a good guy he or a a human worthy of love and belonging as Mm -hmm. Brene Brown can say he can have lots of good characteristics he can have sincerely wanted to show up in this community and bring value to this community and it can also be true that he did made choices that were inappropriate that made her uncomfortable that she specifically said and this is what is so and she did say I don't like you touching me. Well, no, that's not what she said, actually, because I totally recognize this move. She knew that her best hope of getting him to stop touching her was not to say, I don't like it when you touch me, Dan. Oh, I don't like to be touched. I don't like to be touched. Yes. Oh, I know this is weird. I'm just the kind of person who doesn't like to be touched. It's nothing personal to you, dude. I don't like to be touched by anybody because that's the only way you can do it as a woman is to say... I don't like to be touched by anyone, so please don't be offended. It's not about you. It's about me. And still, he continued to touch her. And there were several... I mean, like the irony about this particular situation is that they're on a reality television show. So they're being filmed all the time. So you, they played this montage of he would continually like reach out and touch her hair and stroke her. And she would say, hey, remember, I don't like to be touched. And he would be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like... Like saying, I'm sorry, made it disappear, which in his mind, he was saying, sincerely, I didn't intend to make you uncomfortable. Now I've said sorry. So from my perspective as the actor, it's over. It's washed out. And she's saying, like, I mean, I get it. (laughs) That can be true. But I still have all the feelings that I had and you're saying you didn't mean to hurt me and you're apologizing for them doesn't undo the situation. And and we were reading online about, because he finally now has made a, a public, public apology mm-hmm. and his public apology, in fact, I really would like to pull it up because it is so typical. He apologized. <laughs> he did not apologize for his actions. He apologized that for her being uncomfortable, which mm-hmm. happens all the time. People apologize for another person's... Um, so this is what, what he says. I'm deeply sorry for how my actions affected Kelly during the taping of this season. Um, and then later on he says, I truly regret that anyone was made to feel uncomfortable by my behavior. That is not an apology. Right. Because you are not saying that you did anything wrong. You're saying, I am sorry that they felt this way about my behavior. I'm not sorry for my behavior. I'm sorry for the way you felt about it. Well, you can't apologize for my feelings. You can apologize for your actions if you want to, or you cannot apologize for your actions too, right? Like no one can make that happen. But the reality is either you care about me and then you say, oh, I'm sorry that for my behavior because I accept that you are the expert in your feelings. So if you tell me that it made you feel uncomfortable, and if I sincerely don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, then I'm sorry for my actions. Mm-hmm. I'm not sorry for the way you feel yes. because that's not in my purview of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that's just so... But on the same time, I am a thousand percent with you that to say this guy Dan is garbage is... I mean, it's just not Christian. And you see the same thing happening, honestly, with Michael Vick right now, that there are so many people who care about animal rights, and there's so many layers of intersectionality in that situation too. But so many people want to just say, well, that guy is garbage, and he should just go off in a corner and die forever. And the reality is, either we believe in redemption, either we believe that the Son of God, who is the perfection of God, died 
for worthless humanity and therefore people that appear worthless to us or in fact are ontologically worthless are to God worthy of the blood of God's own son or we don't and that's an outrageous thing to believe and so I understand if people don't believe it but what you can't do is call yourself Christian and then say you know, that guy, Dan, is garbage and he should just go to hell. Michael Vick is garbage. He should just go to hell. Donald Trump is garbage. He should just go to hell. What we believe, the audacious thing that we believe as followers of Jesus Christ is that there is no human life that is not in God's eyes worthy of redemption and there is nothing irredeemable and there is no human who was not created in the image of God and so no human who doesn't walk around with sacredness and that doesn't mean that everything every human does is okay. You got to hold people accountable. Right. And well, and I would add again that uh, there are systems, there are powers, there are principalities that dehumanize us all. Correct. And 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 keep us all in a kind of bondage. And we have to deal with that as well and not just individual actions. Right. Because again, it's easy for men who want to be allies to say, well, that guy, let, let's, let's just beat him up and not look at our own stuff. Or to be able to say, you know what? I, what's uncomfortable for me is to recognize that I'm a lot like Dan, right? Yeah. Or, I, listen, you know. I remember years ago, Many years ago, before I got married, I remember being on a date. It was a first date. We were at a restaurant, and about 15 minutes in, the woman I was with said to me, do you realize that you just eyed every woman who walked past our table? I quickly did. I was like, no, that's... (laughs) Who are you talking... I don't do that. Mm -hmm. Like, in that moment, I flat out denied it, and... Time passed. I can't remember how much time. And then I caught myself. It was like, holy cow, right? And that that brought up brought me to a place of seeing myself. And I don't think enough men have that experience. We it's just way too easy for us to label someone a perv and say, I'm not that. I'm not that level. And so therefore I'm okay. But if we can begin to see ourselves in the, how we are complicit when it comes to sexism, when it comes to objectifying women, it, it's really humbling because then the fight is not just out there some other person it's also in here and you 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 begin to see it systemically and so i just think it's it's just bigger as we've been saying it's bigger than dan well and i just i I mean i think as christians we ought to be uniquely capable of acknowledging our sinfulness and our brokenness and and grieving it without denying it because i mean i feel the same way about listening, putting myself in a position to listen to the voices of people of color talk about how they experience America and how they experience white people and how they experience white supremacy. And it, it's really painful. And and all you want to do is say, but not me, but not, not me, but, but not, not me, me, right? Not yes. me. And you want to say... You, it's Nathan, the prophet Nathan, to David, well, and as I, angry as David was at that story, right? Yeah. The guy with you. That's you, David. You are the man. Well, I mean, I do think there's a difference because, I mean, the David story was a deliberate act of violence. I mean, because I think it's help. It is helpful, I think, to name powers and principalities of sexism and racism, so that you can say sometimes. I, my actions have an impact that does not line up with my intent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I think is legitimately hard for men like Dan, for, for some white people to be able to say, like, wow, even when I really, really don't want to be sexist, even when I really, really don't want to be racist, I still see the world and have deep biases that are almost impossible to overcome, especially if I'm not willing to confront them. Right. And that's, what's hard. Like, because there is a difference obviously between this dude, Dan, like touching that girl's hair often and some other man, you know, raping somebody on a date. Right. So, I mean, I do think that that's, what's 
hard too is being able to say there are degrees of assault that and violation and those degrees matter it's not all the same but it all comes from the same system of pervasive brokenness and that's my point mm-hmm. yes and i just but i mean it's really hard and i think you know for for white people to be able to sit with the awareness that this isn't about other people it's about me like and i will never get to a stage where i don't have to be really um really humble about examining my own actions and ready ready to hear a Nathan in my life saying, hey, you did that. And to say, like, I mean, just Paul saying, like, I am the thing that I hate. And, like, what a terrible thing that is. And one of the great things, and you mentioned this uh, a moment ago, about our faith is um, the forgiveness of sin. I love it when someone in the context of worship reads those words from the New Testament um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive, we deceive ourselves. ourselves the, the truth, truth is, is not in us. us. But, but mm-hmm. if we confess God is faithful and just, not only to forgive, but to cleanse. There, there's a, mm-hmm. if we will, if we will embrace the pain of, of, of seeing ourselves, there, there's a transformation that right. can because happen. Because it's there. repentance. Yes. That when we repent, we can change. But when we deny, then we close ourselves off to grace and there's no chance for a transformation because we're saying what I'm doing isn't wrong. Mm -hmm. Anyone who experiences it as wrong, Mm -hmm. they are wrong and I'm going to continue to walk in my path because my my self-image, my peace lies in my, my claiming deciding for myself that I'm a good person. So anything that makes me question my own goodness must be rejected, right? Because my peace doesn't come in being redeemed by Jesus. My peace comes from comparing myself to other people and deciding I'm better, right? And so... And the the church just has to... We have to get get it. better at proclaiming that to the world because these kinds of things pop up in our society all, all the, time. the time and I, I just see the church missing opportunities well, to say not, hey we're society just not Christian we're just I mean the yeah. church the marketplace the most popular versions of Christianity are not Christian like mm. they're not they don't have anything to do with Jesus they're all about like good people are a part of this faith tradition and they have the right knowledge and the right action and God rewards them that yeah. is not the gospel yeah. the gospel is God stopping Saul on the road to Damascus. The blood is not yet dry in his hand from killing people in Jerusalem. He's on his way to murder people in Damascus. And God stops him and says, I want you to bear the gospel. Not the stuff. And that's why Paul can say, like, I mean, I understood myself to be the best. When in reality, I was the literal worst. And God didn't say, well, you're a piece of garbage. Let me just send you to hell. God said, no, you are. Then this is why grace is offensive. There is in you more than the worst thing Mm. you have done Mm -hmm. without saying that the things you did weren't the worst. That's right. They were the worst. But when I put my grace in you, then what's visible is my grace. That's good. And we just don't get that. That's good. So... Anyway, Survivor. Survivor. I, I mean, listen, we some, said on the walk, everything is theological. Everything is spiritual. Right? Everything Absolutely. is spiritual, right? Yeah. So, no, I, I found that to be so, just watching that unfold was so, I mean, it was fascinating. Right. And I think also, did, didn't did race come up this season as well? Right. Uh, because remember the one dude said that the other guy's buff was a do-rag? That's right. Yes. And, I knew there was a- and that was a really beautiful moment. Yes, because the guy that the the white guy that made the offense said, "You know what? You're right." When that came out of my mouth, I knew it was wrong. And when when he was called out, he didn't deny it. He didn't run from it. He just he just said, "Yes, you you are right. I'm sorry." And that it was incredibly gracious of the African American man, honestly, to say. I'm going to tell you the truth. I mean, this is the thing that I think white people don't get, or maybe men don't get, is that if someone comes to you and says, when you said this thing, when you did this thing, it wounded me, it hurt me, it made me uncomfortable, like, that's a gift. That's somebody coming to you and saying, I'm telling you this because I actually think Mm 
Wow. That you care enough about me that you would want to know and That's you would want to make a change. Like I, there That's are people big. who do things that I won't talk to because it's just not. I was not just <laughs> about to say that. There are people who will say something offensive to me and I will, you know what? I'm just not even. Because I'm not going to do the emotional labor. Yes. I'm not going to take the risk. Yes. Like I don't want it turned around yep. against me. I yep. don't think there's any way that they'll get it. And that's yeah. not faithful on my part as a believer, but I just think if somebody, if somebody loves you enough to rebuke you and you're, and you are mature, Mm -hmm. then you will have a posture of Faithful are the wounds of of a a friend. friend. Right. And Proverbs. So anyway. Survivor. Yes. That's just, there's some really good stuff. People should watch. Watch with your children. Yeah. It's really good. Survivor people. Um, I, yes. So anyway, the season finale. We should be contestants. They they should call us. I mean, I know. Listen. I would never be a contestant on Survivor. I would oh, be the first out. Oh, you would be out. good. I would be the first you out. Would the literal good. first out. No, no I would, would be the be first good. one out the door. No, good. I will just watch. No, I would them. be the first out because they would say they always vote no, the black no. people. Yeah, first. yeah. First of all, they vote the black people at first, mm-hmm. but secondly, I I'm not as um as as social as I think you need to be, and I think they're like that guy's way too quiet. He's like, he just no. seems sneaky to me. No. And so, yeah, I would be, yeah. I, I would be a terrible survivor. I would have to win every challenge. Right. Well, <laughs> anyway. All right. Enough survivor, <laughs> probably enough podcast, but what are you preaching on this week? Uh, let's see this week, uh, Matthew chapter one, um, where Joseph has a dream and he's told, uh, that the baby Mary is carrying is of the Holy spirit and he should not be afraid, uh, to marry her, um, because again, the, the babies of the Holy Spirit and, uh, they should name him Jesus, shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And, um, as we talked about it during the walk, you really helped me, um, uh, because our theme, you know, we're doing the traditional Advent themes of joy, hope, uh, peace, and love. And this Sunday is love. And, um, you really helped me during the walk to see that, uh, love calls us to um, not be respectable, which is all over that text, both Mm -hmm. for uh, Joseph and Mary. And love seeks the good of others. Again, Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph, and and even uh, from God's point of view, God's whole um, intention of incarnating God's self in Jesus is because God so loved the world. Right. And and love takes risks, and right? And love takes risks. Because what I think is notable about that story is that, you know, Joseph by in the natural sense was already going to do the loving thing because he was going to put her away quietly, That's right. right? So I think there's the unreasonableness of love of saying like no love goes, I mean, and again to match with the incarnation, love goes beyond what is reasonably um, or safely, or respectably kind to, you know, honor and believe the best. And also just like we, we find the incarnation. I mean, we have a concept for incarnation. So for us, as much as we might struggle to believe it, mm-hmm. I mean, the incarnation is a thing. There's a shelf in our minds called for incarnation. It. Yes. But there was no concept of incarnation for Joseph, for Mary. I mean, this idea of a virgin birth, I mean, it just, it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I should probably take that back. I think there probably was like myths around okay. like Greek gods being born. But I, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure that whatever. All I'm saying is we expect our lives following Jesus to be reasonable and respectable and risk-free. And there's just, when we are prepared to love someone, we're always kind of seeking what the ROI will be Mm -hmm. and kind of calculating Mm -hmm. whether it's worth it or not. And in this story, and what I love about all the nativity stories is, I mean, uh, everyone says yes to God, which doesn't happen in scripture and but everyone says yes and that's just um an incredible thing even Zachariah I was saying on Sunday and this did not get the response that I thought it might in the moment but what I think is interesting about the Zachariah story among other things is like John's birth was miraculous but it was not a virgin birth so like Zachariah went home and like (laughs) I mean, he could have taken a vow of celibacy for spite, and he did not, right? So yeah. he said yes, and 
I think that's a really interesting. You know what? Thing. I've Everybody never made that connection. Yes. That's well, I mean, wow. it's uncomfortable. Yeah. In church yeah. on Sunday, I talked about sex and beer, and nobody even. <laughs> <laughs> it says that he's not going to drink wine or any other fermented beverage, and that means beer. Yeah, so that's yeah. anyway, whatever. It was a little, maybe it was a little raw. Well, but the implication of all this for the mission of the church is just huge, right? Correct. If we're seeking to be a church that genuinely follows Jesus, that walks in love, then we can't seek to be respectable or to we, do what's or, reasonable or reasonable or risk free. Correct. Right. And, and I just think too often we can look at something and say like, well, what the loving thing to do for that person, I can see what it is, but I'm not going to do it because God wouldn't ask that of me or mm-hmm. it would require too much of me. And I mean, maybe God isn't asking it of you. Maybe it would require too much of you, but also maybe not, you know, and I just think that's um, what we need to wrestle with a lot more just the improbable well, we I mean our Advent theme is the glorious impossible so it's just been really helping me this season to recover the impossibility of the whole thing and how often in the church all we want to do is what is possible and if all we're willing to do is what is possible then then I mean I think God will meet us in that because God is so gracious but God is still doing impossible things and if we we're either going to participate in that or not and a lot of times we choose not. We choose not. Um, wow. So, wow. anyway. So, what are you preaching? I'm preaching on the Annunciation. And um, also, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the obvious thing is that Mary says yes, right? And she, she doesn't really, she questions, but she doesn't challenge. Um, and that's a thin line, honestly, between Zachariah's response and Mary's response and why one, although I was saying on Sunday too that I don't. I don't think that the silence that was given to Zechariah was a punishment. I just think his own voice needed to be stilled. Um, and I think not being able to talk gave him this continual proof that it happened and that, that, that you know, right? Like it, and I also think my whole life I've read commentaries where they've suggested that he was made deaf as well because they wrote for him later on when he, and I've always thought like, well, that's not true and that's an assumption and blah, blah, blah. But then I think, wow, I wonder, it does sort of make sense to me. It's interesting to imagine why what would be taken from him was not only his own voice, but also the ability to hear so that for those nine months, he really, the, the true that he was living with was only the truth that came from God and just not as someone who obviously likes to talk a lot if you could see Yolanda's face right now like his eyes are about to pop out of his head I know I know (laughs) I was just thinking how hard would it be for an extrovert right yeah yeah not to be able to talk like to want to talk but just can't get it out well and I just think for me I need I I hate being quiet and I hate being alone and it's so essential and so Mm. I do often you know need the Lord to force my hands because I just don't do what I know is good for me because anyway so that um so I'm talking about Mary saying yes and I think I'm going to talk a little bit about how just, I want to play around with this idea that Mary, for love of God and trust of God, says yes um, to God, to the body of Christ in her physical body. And just how... I love that. And I think that as, a, as church members, like the body of Christ that we have now is one another. And I feel like a lot of times we're willing to be, you know, we're willing to have like a, maybe a membership identity with someone or to sit next to them in a pew or what, but there's just a huge amount of reserve of parts of ourselves and parts of our lives that we hold back. Like this is my personal life and that, you know, and I just think, I mean, obviously healthy boundaries, right? Caveat, but there's just an, I think we hold too much back. Well, I think there's a, I think there's a Greek word that is especially used in the Greek Orthodox Church concerning Mary. And if I'm right, I think that's it. Yes. Mm -hmm. God bearer. Mm -hmm. And that makes me think about what you're saying earlier about the member of your church, David, right? Mm -hmm. He's a God bearer. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what we're all called to be. 
Mm-hmm. And just really thinking about what does that mean and where am I putting limits? And I th- in fact, my friend Kim said the other day that she had been reading something on um, Desiring God, which is kind of a hit or miss site for me. But um, John Piper had asked the question, you know, what parts of your life do you function as if Jesus was not the Lord of them? Mm. And she was saying like, oh, I hate that question because the reality is, you know, like I've got no problem. I mean, this is me talking, not Kim, but like I've got no problem with saying like, yep, God is Lord of my theology and God is Lord of my doctrine and God is Lord of my professional life to an extent. But there are areas of my life, like in my friendships where I'm like, no, I'll choose my friends, God. Right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Or like yeah. just in my eating habits, which is not about losing weight or being, but I mean to say like, do I know about human resource, like world resources and how much is, you know, what it takes for eating meat versus, you know, and mm. but there are times when I'm just like, no, God, I'll just eat what I desire to eat. And I won't mm. think about, you know, or I'll buy that new shirt, even though I don't need a new shirt, even though I know, you know, what that industry, but I just, you know, I'm saved by grace. So I'll just make whatever choice I want to make in this, you know, I mean, they're just, it's just hard to live with that question and say, what does it look like? How much of myself am I saying, no, this is private and this is mine yeah, and I will maintain control of this. And what does it mean at the center of our faith to have the story of a person who became as vulnerable as any human being could yeah. ever become on every level. Yeah. To say, let it be to me according to your word, like in my body. And just, it's, and I am the Lord's hand servant. And I yeah. think, when you talk about double meaning of a word, like often, and I've become more useful with this language of calling Jesus Lord. And I think a lot of times when we use that language, what we are saying is, I am affirming that Jesus is the name above all names. Like I am Mm -hmm. affirming that Jesus has this status in the world, but to call someone Lord, like in human history, the person you call Lord is the person that you do what they say. Mm -hmm. And so when I call Jesus Lord, I'm not thinking about that. (laughs) I'm not thinking, you know, I'm saying like, Oh, I'm making a theological statement. I'm not taking a posture of, vulnerability Mm -hmm. and um obedience like that's not yeah i mean i'm an american god darn it and i (laughs) the way i've put that before congregations is the reality is jesus wants to run your life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not me yeah like i'm not trying to run your life let me just be clear and we keep talking about the problems with like oh women shouldn't be an authority over church and i'm like no suckers listen a human should not be an authority over the church. That hierarchical model with the man on top and the other people beyond and controlling the roles, like that is a natural cultural model. The church is not a democracy. It is a monarchy. Jesus is Lord. The rest of us are living in total submission to Jesus and mutual submission to one another. And we have different roles with different gifts and different responsibilities, but we are all equally honored and valued and chosen mm-hmm. at the foot of the cross. There's no hierarchy yeah. in the church. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Well, and we're all family. If if you shied away from lordship language, up until recently, I shied away from family language mm-hmm. because in my mind that meant, um, and in my experience of other people, that meant uh, if the church is a family, then, um, well, then you, you got to have male pastors because they're they're, they're the fathers, fathers right? right? Mm-hmm. And that made me really uncomfortable. Um, but I started to see myself as everyone's brother. It's like, right. oh, okay, okay, I, I get it. Kinship makes sense. But also, yes. it was interesting, and I didn't have time to talk about this on Sunday, but the language, the prophecy given to Zechariah about John is so interesting because it says, you know, he will bring you great joy and delight, and he will bring joy to all people because why? He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children. And so that's interesting. Like, it, I think, and I didn't do enough study about this, but I mean, I think this idea that we have of the family being like the paterfamilias with the father on top and everyone else submitted an authority like i think in that text the suggestion is wait a minute like in the cultural moment children submitted to their parents and that was it but then 
in this prophecy around John, Gabriel is saying, I'm redeeming this metaphor of family and I'm going to turn the hearts of the parents back to their children. So instead of parents sitting around all the time being like, you know, fifth commandment, baby, you owe me everything, (laughs) that they would would be um, formed in the image of God who comes down to his children to save, to dwell with them, to love them and not, you know, sort of seeking Mm-hmm. control and demanding um, honor. And, you know, so that was just a really interesting reversal that a lot of times there are certain images and metaphors that we can't use, not because they're wrong, but because our culture has so twisted and distorted yes. them that we have to reclaim them. we've gone the other them. end. Yes. Yes. Which because is- in the first century, children were seen and not heard. Children were almost property, right? Mm-hmm. And so now in our society, we're at the other end of the spectrum where in many cases we overindulge children. Right. But I mean, in the wrong, in the wrong ways. I mean, oh, we, absolutely. That's, we indulge yeah. children in a way that as adults makes us feel good, mm-hmm, not mm-hmm, necessarily. Mm-hmm, but I, mm-hmm. anyway, all that to say, we should stop talking. I could say a million more things. Obviously, we need to stop talking. Um, and next week, we are going to upload a podcast, we think, of the cantata from The Grove. So that's full of music and some uh, short readings. And so we hope Exciting. that you guys will like that. And we will be back in um, for that last week of 2019, right? Wow, we'll have a yeah. year-end conversation. So um, everyone should definitely go check out Jariada Presbyterian Church. Google it and pop over to their website. And you should definitely listen to um, Yolando's sermons, which are on the Podbean website. Search Jariada Church. And you should go to YouTube because there is an amazing video that Yolanda made oh, with his son Matthew. Nice. Is it what's it? Is it under the Derida Church channel? It's under my name. Yolanda, like, so you should search Yolanda Hinton on mm-hmm. YouTube, and there's a really cool video. And you, I am really nice because I said like, oh, the first one's going to be bad. First pancake rule, like we're not even. And then this is your first one, and it's not bad. It's really good and really powerful. So you should look at that, Yolanda Hinton on YouTube. And if you would like to know what's happening at The Grove, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org. And if you want to listen to a sermons from The Grove, you can go to iTunes and search The Grove Charlotte. So we will talk to you soon. Bye.